It's my great pleasure to be here today with two very good friends and colleagues, fellow futurists, Glenn Heemstra, uh, a longtime friend and also a longtime futurist, a very long time, uh, owning the URL futurist.com, and Anton Musgrave from Cape Town, uh, uh, South Africa, and he's also a fellow team member of mine. So we have gathered here today to talk about uh, the meaning of futurism and what does it mean to be a futurist based on what's happening today um, and how is our job changing and in general you know what does it mean to be a futurist and what does it entail so welcome everybody and i would suggest that we dive right into the first topic right um i would like to hear from you i'm going to say i do the same thing i'd like to hear from you how do you how do you define your job and how has it changed possibly in the last decades or so Uh, and how do you think it will change going forward? Well, let me take a stab at that and I'll, I'll just do part of it and then we'll come back to the other uh, parts of the question. Uh, I've always defined my job as trying to understand the relationship of the future, the present and the past, how the future uh, influences the present, how the past uh, did that, and then how we're doing things in the present that influence the future. Uh, I do that by asking three questions about the future that I try to work with organizations to uh, wrestle with or in some senses to play with, and those are uh, not mysterious. They are what is probable in the future, what is possible in the future, and and what is your preferred future. And then depending on who's, uh, what the assignment might be, we might spend more or less time on one of those uh, questions. So that's, that's in a nutshell what uh, how I've defined being a futurist. And how has that changed, you know, since the last since this crisis came about, because everybody now wants to know what the future is, right? Uh, you're still using well, the same approach or is it more short-fused? Uh, it is temporarily more short-fused. Uh, you know, I think we're in this this uh, this crisis moment and it's actually quite challenging, I think, to, to think about the long-term future because the uncertainties are so high around the, the virus. Um, you can draw scenarios that uh, if, if you have a, you know, in one scenario, you, you get a, a vaccine And two years from now, the whole thing is behind us. And in another scenario, you don't have that. And then you have very, very different futures. And so actually, I've advised my uh, my ongoing clients uh, to not make long-term decisions right now, to just try to, to preserve their assets and their employees, uh, to keep looking at scenarios and, and to be thinking about their preferred future beyond this. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm not actually trying to advise them to, to make long-term kind of permanent decisions during this crisis. Yeah, Anton, how do, you, how do you think about your job today and tomorrow? I mean, it's, certain, it's certainly fascinating right now, and it has changed, Good, so we'll get back to that piece. But for me, it's always been about uh, getting a team of leaders to think beyond the obvious and to think beyond their current short-term business plan. If you look at the demands of the capital markets, uh, leaders are short-term focused. It's quarterly results, it's interim interviews, it's one-year plans. And so that engrosses the, the attention span and the sort of intellectual headspace of most executives. So I see the job as a futurist as getting them, helping them, provoking them to think just beyond their horizon of, of comfort, if you like, and to ask the questions, you know, what happens after this, this two or three step changes? Now, what's coming over the horizon? And yes, I agree, I agree with Glenn is to try and understand the, the possible outcomes which may arise. It's absolutely not about predicting the future. That should be avoided at, at all costs. <laughs> but, but it's to get their minds to open up to possibilities outside the short-term thinking and out, outside the sort of tram lines of short-term tactical business planning. Uh, and, and to get them excited about that, uh, you know, to, to awaken their memories of possible exciting futures uh, and, and to evoke in them an ambition to, to at least think about. And then obviously with our, our business advice role uh, to choose uh, a different future that's uh, aspirational, exciting, will require lots of different things to be done, uh, things they wouldn't have done. So for perhaps for me, the ultimate test is, Will they, in working with a futurist, take different business decisions? Interesting. You know, I, I have my, my approach is very similar, and it has changed a lot in the last couple of years. But you know, the the concept of predicting the future is always being presented to me as desirable by the clients, right? Because 
clients are saying, we want to know what's happening, which stock should we buy, and so on and so on, right? And what's going to happen, what will happen. And now it's been the last couple of years I've been able to morph that over into saying, you know what, the future is basically, of course, it's unknown and it's unpredictable, but also uh, basically in 10 years, we'll be pretty much capable of anything we want to do because technology is exponentially enabling us. So the key question is no longer what is possible, but what do we want, right? So I've, I've shifted a lot in the last few years, you know, exponential change and all that by saying, basically the future is not about saying what can we do and what will happen, but what do we want to do, right? So as you were saying, Glenn, you know, the preferred the preferred future. And the other thing is that uh, in my work, I, I really try to take more of a therapist role. You know, I sometimes jokingly call myself the future therapist because really what I do is I tell them what they already know, right? That they already are aware of all of these things, but they haven't realized what it means. It's just like when you go to th therapy with your wife or so, and, and you know this issue exists, but you've never... Yeah, it's always been uncomfortable, right? And now you head on into it um, and you can lose or win. So that brings me to my next question and we should, you know, have a back and forth on this. Uh, the next question is the enormous pressure you're getting and that I'm getting from clients to give them precise instructions for the future, right? Uh, and to tell them what's going to happen and to tell them what, to give them a recipe, right? Again, it's like when you go to a therapist, the therapist doesn't say, you know, your wife is not happening, you should move on. It doesn't say that. Uh, he waits for you to discover that or not, right? But but the clients come to me and say, you know, what's going to happen and where should we put our money, right? So I'm sure you've seen that situation. What's your response? I've seen that situation many times. Um, but apropos to, to what uh, you were just saying earlier, one of the ways that I thought of myself, and I've often said this to groups that I'm working with, I, I'm here as, as your excuse to talk about the things that you would like to talk about, but don't really ever have permission to do so, which is, as Gerd, Gerd as you said, people know a lot more about the future than they give themselves credit for. And so I, I don't surprise them nearly as much as you might think, or and you don't surprise them as much as they, they think, oh, they're going to say something I've never heard before. Uh, and occasionally that happens, but but mostly they, they know, uh, but they're trapped in systems in which they're forced to look at the next year, the next two years or the next six months, and they don't get this chance to, to think longer term. So uh, I, I may not, I have presented myself as the therapist, but as the excuse to do, uh, have the conversation that you've always wanted to have. You know, I think it's interesting when you talk about this position, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been hired by people who want to use me as a shield uh, to get to the really important questions, right? So if they were to bring those important questions, they would be fired or disregarded or hated ubiquitously by everybody. So they bring me and they say, he's probably going to say the same thing, right? Uh, and this is what I mean with a therapist role. A therapist can say, you know, your wife is really rejecting you or so, but it's hard for the wife to say that, you know? So it's kind of like and that feeling, I'm, I'm sure, Anton, you had the same experience uh, uh, I mean, absolutely. And it's, it's one of the things I tell a client right up front is that I, I promise never to tell you what to do. And that kind of rocks them a little bit. And the next thing, similar to you, uh, Glenn, I say to them, you know, if I tell you something you you don't know, you should be really way more scared than you thought. Um, but what I will help you do is think about those things that you know differently. You know, one of my favorite questions is to ask a, a team of leaders to talk to each other uh, about their own children. Tell me one thing that really scares or excites you about your own kids. And there's this amazing animated conversation about their children. It's fantastic. And they talk about all sorts of things. And then when they're done, I say, now, what does that mean for your business? And there's this stony silence in the room because they realize they've been looking at the future over every dinner table, uh, but never understanding what it means in relation to their business. Uh, and there's this like, wow, I never thought of it like that. And to me, that's a test of a, of a good futurist. If someone you know, talks about something or thinks about something in a way they've never thought of before, mission accomplished. Um, you know, and, and so for me, good, it's, it's uh, if clients want me to give them the paint by numbers answers, I'm the wrong guy. You know, go and hire a consultant that's got a, an army of 28-year-old MBAs and they'll tell you a whole bunch of stuff. The fact is, you know, you're never going to execute the difficult stuff with passion anyway. So <laughs> I don't know why you want that. But <laughs> yeah, and the, you know, I think the other difficult part that I encounter a lot and, and that's also changed since the COVID crisis, is that uh, the American 
view and the Anglo uh, world view of futurism is is one thing, right? And then there's a European view and the German view, which is mostly, you know, this is suspect, right? This is like, uh, you know, he's a sorcerer or something. I mean, the German chancellor, I think uh, Helmut uh, Schmidt, or was it Schroeder before that, he said like 20 years ago, if you have visions, you should go see a doctor, right? And th this was the chancellor of Germany, right? And you can't say that about Merkel. She has lots of visions, but 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 you know this is a really a difficult part, uh, and this is why uh, I think that's one of the real difficulties for doing this job. You're always somewhere between the sorcerer and the magic wand guy, and then the other guy who is who's making a mess out of things. Yeah. Well, it's one of it's it's one of the issues between the, the whole concept of, of prediction and and preferred or or uh, yeah preferred futures. Um, on, on the prediction side, people do tend to think that that, you, that can the future can be predicted, and that if we just study it enough, it will become very obvious what we should do. Uh, and that's kind of a fallacy that I try to break the organizations that I work with up. Uh, and in fact, because in fact, if you start looking at, at future trends and, and all the alternatives that are out there, all the things that, that could happen, um, it actually becomes more confusing instead of more clear. Uh, and, and that's a challenge that that, or, that uh, people in the organizations have to get through. But on the preferred side, people get suspicious of that. Uh, particularly, I've, I've had uh, when I've worked with European clients, uh, they're suspicious of, of that because uh, there are alternatives, of course, in terms of preferences. You know, um, the president of the United States might have one preferred future, but somebody else might have a different preferred future. And just because it's somebody's preference doesn't mean that it's good. And so, sorting through what what actually is a a truly preferable future for most of society is is actually a big challenge. But but this is part of the intuition, right? To me, I always say this is really not a science. At least it's not for me. It's not a I'm not a scientist. But uh, for me, futurism is a bit of an art, right? Because we have to choose and we have to match and we have to use our intuition. We can't just measure. I think there were other futurists that are more measurable, you know. Uh, but everybody's different, and and this is one of the the key things. In the end, you know, you will not get a conclusive answer. No much, no matter how much you study and how many focus groups you run, you're still going to have to sit down and say, "I think it's this." Right? Good. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. I think the the, the point also to understand is there's no one right answer. So for business A, you might choose to do something different because for you and your team and your skills and your customers, that's preferred. And for the next business that does exactly the same thing, the future may hold an entirely different preferred future. So it's really to distill the options um, out. There are many, many options, many, many choices. And how do you take a team on a, on a journey, a process to distill out what that means for them and what then help them choose what will inspire them, what will unlock their, their full potential and their ambition uh, and frame that in a coherent plan and get them excited about that. Uh, but to do it sort of from a future perspective. So imagine this outcome five years from now, seven years from now, whatever the timeline really is, um, and get excited about that. And, and then teams of people do amazing things when they're inspired by what the destination looks like. You know, it's like taking your kids on a holiday. You don't bundle them into the car or the airplane and say, I'm not sure where we're going, but be excited. <laughs> so um, let's talk about one key question uh, that I have been looking at the last six months. Uh, it seems like the COVID crisis has destroyed any sort of law, wider scale future thinking because uh, everything you say now, people say, well, what does it mean now, you know, and, and, and what is changing now? And like, you know, the, my entire uh, catalog of topics and questions is now being put in context with the COVID crisis, right? And it seems like all people want to know is, you know, what, how does the COVID crisis impact this? Uh, so have you noticed this kind of phenomena where people are saying, never mind the future, tell us about, you know, post-corona? I think for me, what I'm trying to do right now is actually not talk about futurism or the future through a COVID lens. Um, we're all in the middle of it and everyone's coping with it. And I agree with Glenn. It's about cash flow and your people and your customers. But, but really to get the team to think COVID will end at some point. It might be 12 months. It might be 18 months. Uh, and the future that I certainly work with is a longer term than that. 
So, uh, and, and, and the term differs. It differs uh, per industry almost. And, and the term for me is what is that time frame in which you are uncertain of everything? Uh, and that's the context in which you need to have this future conversation. And that's clearly post-COVID. So, you know, if you want a COVID conversation, to me, that's tactical. It's survival. But it's not what futurism, futurism or being a futurist is all about. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen the same, same thing. Uh, people are, of course, are, uh, and I've, I've been here <laughs> stuck in the United States, uh, you know, where, where the COVID crisis is, is quite extreme. Uh, and so it's really top of mind for everybody. Everybody's just trying to survive and cope. Uh, and, and yet there's, there's lots of conversation about what, what does it mean for the very long term? There's lots of people making claims that it means either, you know, various things have changed forever. Uh, because of the COVID crisis. And, and I'm a little, I count myself something of a skeptic of almost any claim that something is never going to be the same because of this crisis. I, I, I went back and I, I, I read um, uh, a journal of the plague year, the, the last time the plague came through London and well, one of the times it came through in uh, 1665. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it, it killed like 20% of the population. Uh, and two or three years later, uh, things had gotten back to normal. Uh, you know, so people are, are amazingly resilient. So if we get through this, that, that is, if there's vaccines and, and in fact, the, this, this particular virus issue is behind us, there will be a few things that, that have changed quite significantly because of this and will not go back to the way they were. That's for sure. But it's, it's not so easy to say what those are. And so I agree with Anton that, that to get an organization to sort of look beyond this, to just say, uh, and in fact, uh, I was just proposing this with an organization a couple of weeks ago that that the project we should do would be to to look at the future 10 years from now in this particular organization's case and just assume that the whole virus thing is behind us as though it almost didn't happen. Of course, it, it had some, some impacts on various things, but let's let's take a look at the future as though that that's that's not the most significant factor. In fact, not a factor at all. Uh, and, and I think that's quite powerful. My work, by the by the way, um, I've tended to push organizations to, to look much further ahead than, than they typically do. Uh, they, they resist that some, but, but 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, occasionally even longer than that. I think also, you know, to get back to the, to the COVID issue, uh, Glenn, it's not COVID on its own that's going to change things. Uh, it's the combinatorial effect of a growing inequality in the world, uh, rampant capitalism and all of the, the obvious ills, you know, that we've seen in recent years executive remuneration, some of the behaviors of some very large companies in the world, um, shifts in society, the generational stuff, and these things combine to create different uh, futures out there. And that's the rich conversation. So it needs to go way beyond this two-year pandemic. And of course, the other thing that I talk about is there will be COVID-20 and COVID-2021, and uh, and then there'll be an, an environmental event of equal proportion. So Talk about these things. Don't just talk about one thing that we happen to be living in right now. Yeah, I mean, to me, the whole discussion about COVID has been a really interesting learning journey. I've, I've sort of looked at this in different ways, and I've published a bunch of things about the post-corona future, and now I'm changing it to the with-corona future. But, you know, same thing, right? So basically, I've, I've used my intuition by saying, okay, what's going to happen? And one thing I said in my 12 bullets is that for example, the populists and the people who are utterly useless in running countries will will be sunk as a part of this uh, uh, experience, and this is really what's happening in the U.S. right now. And right? I mean, this is this is this is the end of the administration, no matter how you look at it, and no matter whether you like Trump or not. You know, but I, so I think there's a couple of things that are really, you know, I talked when you talk to a 25 year old person today, or I talk to my son who's 30, right? For him, this COVID crisis has as big of a cutting effect uh, in, in his life, because it's a young life, right, as World War II in many ways, right? It, it's, it's basically like, it's, it, and for us, it's like, okay, it's one of the bumps, you know? But this is not Fukushima. This is not September 11th. This is not uh, 2007 financial crisis. It's a fundamental reset, I think, for so many neighboring facts that changes the narrative, you know, the, the way that we look at the world, right? And this is why I think that, you know, whatever normal is, we don't really know what normal is. There's no such thing. Everybody lives in a different normal, you know. Um, yeah, we are, it's the context that's changing. And I think we're going to look back at this time. We're going to say, wow, you know, we went through some really 
amazing changes. Like the government is telling us what to do now, right? Uh, and in many countries, the government is paying us, right? We have a basic income, right? Well, of course, not in America or in South Africa, but, <laughs> but uh, well, they, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, America is also paying a lot of people to do, uh, you know, just to stick around. So, so this is why I think the COVID thing, my position has changed completely because here in Europe, people are saying, well, don't tell us about digital ethics. Don't tell us about uh, the future of artificial general intelligence. All of that stuff is off the table. We got, we've got more important things to do, right? And that is European solidarity, the startup package, uh, you know, the, the politics around this, the geopolitics, what's going to happen to China. And the entire questions have shifted for me. Uh, that's a challenge. I think that's a, that's a really great moment for Europe, right? So, so what's Europe's preferred future? Uh, and, and, and the things that shape that are including new forms of manufacturing, uh, artificial intelligence, and COVID absolutely is one of those inputs into shaping the context in which Europe chooses its preferred 2050 future. Uh, I, I wish more countries, mine included, would have that conversation. You know, what is our ideal country 10, 20 years from now? Well, you know, uh, it, it's, it, what's interesting to see is that whatever was bad before it gotten worse, that's certainly true for South Africa, right? And whatever has been good before, in many cases, has gotten better. You know? Sure, absolutely. Right? Right? Absolutely. And, and, I mean, it, we've seen industries transform more digitally in the last four months than in the last five years. You know, yeah, you know, Satya Nadeya from Microsoft said the other day, he said there's been more digital transformation in the last three months than the previous three years, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's so it's so true. That's that's. I think that's a good thing, uh, even though... Yeah, it can be disconcerting for people, but uh, so this is one of the, the the key challenges, I think, putting all this together in a in a new context and and reevaluating. And this is, in fact, what I've been thinking about: if the term futurist is still a good term, you know, because it kind of implies like you're not here, you're there, you know. Uh, and and it's also such a disparate view uh, in different countries how people look at futurism and like you know, it's it's normal in the U.S. or in, or in Anglo world, and here it's kind of weird, you know? It's like, uh, well, you know the future, you know? So that's one of those constantly recurring challenges, I think. One of my least favorite ways of being introduced is as a futurologist, because, I mean, that really sounds <laughs> <Yes>. very... <laughs> well, that's real football stuff, you know? So, but I agree with you, good. I think what COVID has done for us is, of course, is, you know, everyone with an opinion and a microphone and a modem is suddenly a futurist. Uh, so, so perhaps the word needs to become a future strategist or, or so, some such thing. But uh, to me, it's, 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 uh, it's all about understanding these waves of change and then guiding a business to have a real business conversation about choices and outcomes. Uh, well, I think, you know, when, when you look at really successful people from the digital era, from the digital economy the last 20 years, you, you can tell that all of those people are very heavily steeped in technology and they look at data and they do all these things. But in the end, right... It's always about the art of creating. Like, like Steve Jobs said, Apple is about technology and art, right? Absolutely. And, uh, and Absolutely. It is, it's, it's not about building a magic box, you know. And then yeah. Jeff Bezos said the other day, you know what? I look at all this data and everybody has to show me data. In the end, I use my intuition and imagination and I, I go for that, right? Uh, yeah. And I think this is, this is also a key message for organizations. You cannot sit down and take out a map and execute on the map, and then you're safe in the future, you know? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Especially not I mean, now. If you look at some of the businesses that I've experienced that have, that have made an, an incredible digital transition in the last four months, every single one of them has designed the human experience at every touch point through a human lens. Sure, they've built the interfaces and the APIs and the payment platforms and all of that, as have many of the big retailers. But the big retailers have done the logical sequential thing, planning thing, and, mm -hmm. and, the, and the others have actually sat down and designed the human experience. Uh, and, and they've done so with incredible impact. You know, when, you, when someone's thought through the, the pre-order, the order, the delivery, and the post-order experience and created moments around that, all it's taken is actually, it's not about technology. It's about understanding human beings and emotions and feelings and experiences. Uh, and for me, that's been a real insight. You know, everyone's got the balance sheet and IT department. That's not what it's about. But it seems like that's a little bit connected with our age, you know. 
It's that we have this background. Uh, yeah, it's it's when you talk to a 25-year-old futurist, and I, I know I've been talking to quite a few of them lately, I, I don't get that impression that it's it's entirely steeped in the same background. You know, it's 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 very technological driven. It's it's very driven by the you know what is possible rather than what is desirable, and uh, and and that you know these kind of approaches really bore me a lot. You know, when you say this is possible uh, rather than what well, is desirable, one of a, of a process. Uh, you know, what's possible is just the first step. I mean, so what is the big debate? <laughs> yeah, let me ask this question uh, to, uh, to both of you. I think it's a key question. When you look at, at our icons, you know, Alvin Toffler, Marshall McLuhan, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, when you look at all those people, you know, how are we different and how is the future going to be different for people? Will we ever have people again like Toffler or, or was this just sort of a, like, you know, Marshall McLuhan was a very iconic figure and he didn't really use the term futurist very much, I don't think. But we look at him like this today and, and is it going to be like that in five years? Are we going to have people like that or was it just the, the sign of the times? You know that's a that's a really good question. Uh, I don't. There there are a couple of people who are in the futures field academically who kind of compare to that. I think you know them. So Hale and Tulia from from Australia is, is the primary one that comes to mind. Who's kind of a philosopher of the future, as all three of those uh, the, the names that you mentioned. Um, one of my observations, and I don't know that this is really fair, but that the academic community in future studies, which has actually grown around the world, you know, in the last couple of decades. Um, has made an effort to change the terminology to um, uh, their term of art, which is strategic foresight, uh, rather than, than futurism, um, and made the uh, made an effort to make the field a little bit more. And again, this may not be quite a fair term, more technocratic, more kind of tool driven. Here are some really good tools for analyzing and assessing the future, and. Uh, as as the field academically goes that direction, then I think it, it loses some of the, the the larger historical philosophical perspective that a, that a Toffler or a Marshall McLuhan would bring. And so that, that we may not see those kind of people associated with futurism uh, again anytime soon. Um, you know, we're we're in this 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 strange period of uh, of, of such major historical shifts. That, that are coming closer together in, in time, that is, they happen faster and faster, um, that it's, it really, I think it would be wonderful if, if another Alvin Toffler would appear to sort of help make sense of what it all means, because uh, just doing the sort of technocratic strategic foresight thing uh, is useful. I mean, it's, it's more useful than, than not looking at the future at all. But I, but I don't think it, it necessarily develops that sort of depth of understanding uh, that uh, those people brought to the field. The power of what Toffler and, and Arthur C. Clarke, and I, and I really just remember one of his favorite, my favorite expressions of his is, unless your view of the future is thoroughly unbelievable, you have no chance of being correct, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but he said that in an era where there, there's always been volatility and uncertainty and change. But it happened within a, a relatively narrow band of, of variability, if you like. And so to come out with these big, powerful, bold insights and statements was shocking. It was scary. And it served a purpose. Uh, and maybe that's where the term futurist was, was, was even valuable. Uh, today, of course, um, you don't need to shock execs all that much. if they, you know, they kind of get the message that this future is going to be very different very soon in very many ways. Uh, and so the role, Gerd, is, as you said, it's uh, maybe as a psychologist almost, is to get them to have their conversations they should be having, but uh, you know, because of the the nature of business today, they're not having. But it's, it's well, not you know, new, I, it's not shocking anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I see uh, people like Toffler or Buckminster Fuller or others more like polymath, you know, like <laughs> going back to Leonardo da Vinci, and, yeah. and I strive to go in that direction, even though that's not something you can probably get. It's something that you are, I suppose, but. For example, I try in my work to create momentable moments and I make a conscious effort because I know that's really important for the audience. <laughs> you know, when I say, for example, you know, you will not find happiness on the screen or in the cloud, you know, that's kind of like, I think it could be something that Marshall McLuhan would have said. Uh, you know, when he said, for example, he said, we can always extend ourselves in media 
but when we extend ourselves, we also amputate ourselves, right? And and those very simple sentences are very powerful, right? Um, because they they bring down the moment into something precise. And I think this is something I've learned from those uh, people I've read and, and and watched and looked at, as opposed to, as you say, Glenn, the sort of technocratical, uh, theoretical uh, view of the world. You know, I think it's all about the story and the, you know. But then again, that's my approach to to doing this job. Yeah. So no, and I, you're, okay. you're, you're actually you give yourselves credit. You're, you're you're quite good at that at creating those those moments and those phrases. Uh, uh, similar to what uh, McClune and, and others did. One, one other thing that, that's that's kind of interesting to think about those people from that from that era. You know, I was a very young person when they sort of became the, the spokespersons. Like I was a high school student or a college student. Um, they came from an era of sort of infinite possibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, they come out of World War II, um, great technological progress, a lot of economic progress in the world, at least the parts of the world that they were in. And um, when, when they looked at the future, I think they tended to see a more uh, a sense of unlimited possibilities than, say, a, a young person today might, or even that we might. We see more limits, uh, and we have to struggle with, with those limits, I think, and, and ask ourselves, can we get beyond those limits, and whether they're, they're environmental or uh, economic or uh, class-based or whatever they might be. And I, that, that could be why we're not seeing a similar kind of literature come out right now, because they just assumed that um, virtually anything was possible, that we could do whatever we wanted to do. At at some base level, I still believe that, Um, but there are a lot of people who don't, and I think we kind of struggle with it on the two poles between the the, the future is more limited than we want it to be, or the future is unlimited. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the way I look at this is basically saying that uh, those people that we mentioned that we listed earlier, they pointed towards a future where it's it's basically the sky is the limit, anything is possible. Now it turns out today that's actually true. <laughs> I mean, it was hard to it was hard to imagine the sixties or seventies or the eighties. You know, I talked about music and the cloud in 1995. People were th- were saying like, you know, this is madness. You know what? You know, it's going to destroy everything and so on. And that's what we have now. So we are actually at the point where we don't have to worry about that anymore if it's possible because we can probably say pretty much anything is possible. Can you upload your brain to the internet? Well, not not today, really, but in 10 years, 20 years, possible. So the real question for me is, you know, what is good for us humans and what is the right thing to do, you know? And this tags on to my next question. Um, politics, uh, ethics, social context, right? It seems like I'm in that position today where everything I do somehow touches on politics or on uh, policy, at least, or on on social governance and social contracts, right? Because, for example, when you talk about COVID and what is happening, you can see that the countries that have a large amount of inequality, again, South Africa, uh, uh, Chile, uh, the U.S., the U.K., and and of course Brazil, right? They are the worst off. There's a direct relationship between inequality and the and uh, the the COVID impact of COVID, right? And as soon as you talk about inequality, you're talking about politics. Everything is so intertwined with politics now, so I find that to be quite a challenge. You know, when when you're speaking to people about what is the right thing to do, you're essentially talking about politics, right? So have you had similar experiences? Uh, I think from from our perspective, good, you're right. I mean, we're we're at the forefront of COVID. We're one of the, I think, the fifth most impacted country at the moment. And certainly socially, the consequences uh, are absolutely dramatic, so bad that I, I, I imagine that by uh, middle of next year, we could have more than 50% unemployment. And, you know, there's only two ways that's going to be fixed. It's through uh, really successful business and appropriate government policy. And so, again, it's not one or the other. It's the interconnection between the two. Um, and I think, you know, that's a feature of this world that is more pronounced than I think in previous eras, is that it's the interconnection and the interdependency between all of these things. Uh, societal attitudes, politics, technology, and business possibility uh, coming together. The, the problem, of course, is as that disparity grows, the, the cynicism between and, and the distrust grows. And so parties, entities that should be collaborating and thinking together and redefining a, a new future, a new outcome, uh, are actually increasingly mistrustful of each other. And that's a very scary reality. 
Yeah, that's that's really really well said, Anton. Um, I've I wrestled with the political question uh, always in, as relates to being a futurist. Um, the the person who mentored me into doing this was a guy who was the director of program planning for Apollo back in the day, and then he became a college president and, and a futurist, and and that's how I kind of got started. And he argued um, when I knew him in the late 1970s that to, future, to be a futurist, you should stay away from politics because you just you're going to antagonize, you know, one group of people that you otherwise could work with. So just uh, stay away from it, that the forces that that a futurist would deal with or talk about or look at would be bigger than politics. They'd be historical forces and technological forces and so on that that uh, are larger than politics. Uh, but more recently, um, as, as Gerd just pointed out, that everything is so influenced now by political decisions that I think um, it behooves futurists to to address politics in some way. Uh, it's a challenging thing to do because you you're you're, you're going to alienate potentially uh, uh, you know a group of people who you don't want to alienate. But uh, the decisions that are going to be made around environment and around uh, future pandemics and around uh, economy and around um, sort of global balance of power are all wrapped up in politics. And so I I haven't written anything on this yet, but I, I'm trying to kind of play around in my mind that this is the time for futurists to be more political than, than they've ever been. And by that, I actually mean, don't just talk about the political forces that are, are shaping the world, but actually take political positions to say, uh, as a futurist, uh, you know, or even just as myself, I just happen to be a futurist, you know, we need to do X or Y in, a, in our country or in our political system. Uh, because I think that uh, to, to ignore it is to ignore probably the most important force in the world right now, which is what direction politically our various countries going to go. Because if, if they go in a particular direction, we're not going to do anything about the environment. If they do if they go in another direction, we will do something about the environment. And so if you, if you talk about the environment and say, but I'm not going to talk about politics, well, then nothing's going to happen. So uh, well, I'm not yeah. quite sure how, how to do this, but, but I think it's time for, for to, to be involved in uh, uh, politics as a futurist. Yeah, I think, you know, we're really in a, in a very unique position today because we're in the middle of this shift from what or how to why, right? Uh, and, and the why question is always going to be political and cultural, and because the why question is, has to do with values, right, and goals, and it's not it's not tactical, you know. Uh, I mean, I, it was Tim Cook the other day when it was about a year ago. I, I went to this event in Brussels, and Tim Cook was speaking there as well, and he said technology can do great things, but it does not want to do great things. It doesn't want anything. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's so that's, true, that's right? Good. That's good. Uh, it's so it's so true. And I think for us, the problem is today we have. My view is we have all of the amazing tools available to solve pretty much any practical problem. You know, whether it's food or water or energy, we we have the tools, right? But do we agree on what we want? And do we agree on the distribution of benefits? Do we agree on the ethics and the values and the principles, right? And you know, the Dalai Lama once said that ethics is more important than religion. Right? So, so, so this is not about any of those things. It's about the bottom line. You know, what, what do we want? And I think this is the key question that, that also rubs a lot of people by saying, okay, if I say, for example, that there's no way around the carbon tax for airlines and for meat, you know, I'm, I'm making a projection to the future. That's to me completely obvious. Just like music moved to the cloud. You know, this is, uh, yeah, a lot of people are not going to like it, but this is what it is, right? Uh, and those are political things. So I, I, I think that's a, that's a real challenge to set that forth. Yeah. I think there's never a better time for a futurist to be involved in a political conversation without being political. And uh, by embracing the sort of party agnostic position, Take 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 yourselves back to the late 80s when the future of South Africa was being debated and negotiated between the then minority government, the ANC who were banned, a communist party and many others in between. When they were talking about the framework of a constitution, there was massive collision of, of philosophy, of ideology, etc., etc., and they could make absolutely no progress. 
until a very wise man who's, I believe, today our president said, let's just press pause. We, we come from two diverse backgrounds to have a debate around what we should do. Let me ask you a different question. Describe the country you would love your children to grow up in. And everyone, whether they were the Communist Party or the banned ANC or the minority white government, we all had the same answer. And so when everyone realized that the outcome was common and, uh, uh, and what everyone wanted, then the what and the how became much easier. And, and you addressed the political kind of conflict, having established a common future outcome. Uh, and business strategy, of course, is exactly the same thing. Let's get excited about the destination. We'll close this department, stop selling that, stop making this. That becomes much easier to do. Whereas if you start from that premise, you know, as you would in a political conversation, it becomes much more difficult. Yeah, that, you know, that's why I've started using the word humanist in my job title. Uh, because I want to shift the attention back from these possibilities of what, it, what technology does to what we actually want. Um, and, you know, when I talk about the future of capitalism, for example, I use the phrase people, planet, purpose, prosperity, right, uh, to, to describe where we are going. And I, I believe that what we have today, uh, because of the COVID crisis, our society is forced to consider that there's something more than making money, right? Because we know the, the, the current way of capitalism is broken. It will not lead us to a good future, right? It will lead us to more emergency situations, you know, first COVID, then AI, then geoengineering, then genomic engineering. And we can't solve any of those like this, right? So and this we're is still why... not being happier people. You know, it's not making yeah. us happier people. And, and I think, yeah, I think this is the other thing, you know, I think it's very important is that to think of a positive future, sort of a Star Trek economy, you could say, right? Um, is to think of that in a in a positive light of saying, you know, we we have all the possibilities. You know, we can invent our way out of so many things, right? But we have to agree on what we want to achieve. And I think this is the primary mission for my work is is not to, to show the cool ways that we that we can invent our way out. You know, the, the cool robots, the cool cars, or whatever, but to help invent the consensus. You know, it's about mindset. It's about calibrating mindset, right? I mean, Jack Ma of Alibaba said, you know, on his singles day where he does $39 billion of turnover in 24 hours, you know, the tech behind that is unbelievable. But he said it's not about that. It's about the attitude and mindset of humans that made that possible, uh, that came up with the idea, that was the dream, and, and then the, the, the funky stuff made it easy to execute. Well, I was just thinking uh, there's a, another another uh, guy that goes back a ways, Ron Lippitt, who came out of uh, organizational development world, who who began doing futures work in the in the 1980s, and he uh, he wrote a paper called Future Before You Plan. I was thinking when Anton was describing the this uh, the, the political move to imagine the future country that you want your children to grow up in, uh, and uh, he was at one of the Michigan universities. I can't remember which one, and uh, he did this research project in which he had groups of people uh, try to plan the future. Uh, first of all, by uh, making plans, identifying problems, for example, and making plans to deal with them. And then other groups uh, who imagined their preferred future, uh, let's say the preferred future South Africa, and then work backwards from that. And, and the article that he wrote, uh, the paper that he wrote was Future Before You Plan, which I've always remembered. And what he found was, um, that the sense of enthusiasm was higher, the, the solutions were better, the commitment to follow through and actually do something was much higher, uh, and the ability to sort of overcome differences that existed when they walked into the room was much higher when they started off with their preferred dream, their preferred vision uh, for what they really want in the future. And uh, that's, uh, that, that's that still is quite powerful. And, you, and you're right, I, I, I've been thinking uh, that it would be good to try to somehow do that on, on a global scale or on a, on a national <laughs> scale in, in these times, if you could, if you could Absolutely. figure out a way to, to, to enable people to sit down and say, what is the world we really want? We'd find that there'd be so much commonality that then the solutions would, would become easier to agree to. Yeah. And if you look at the, the corporate boardroom, I mean, you, you talk about the future. Everyone walks into the boardroom and they're thinking about their retirement date, their share option maturity, their, their business department and their empire. You know, how, And how do you break that? Um, so you, you've got to take the conversation away from all of that. And then those things, they're still difficult, but they're much easier to solve afterwards. <laughs> well, okay, I've got two more topics and then I think we should wrap, okay? 
Uh, first, I want, I want your opinion on science fiction and science fiction movies. Uh, useful, not useful? Uh, does it relate to futurism at all? I mean, I get this question all the time. And my personal view is, you know, just to, to uh, preamble this, uh, is that I like watching science fiction movies, but I, I want to keep that separate from my job because it does taint it to be in, in certain directions. Like, you know, you watch too many Hollywood movies, your view of the future is going to be very dim, right? Um, and so what is your take on science fiction and, and as, as a tool? I don't use it at all, only in, uh, in hindsight. So it's useful to show clips of the movie Back to the Future when he says, roads, we won't need roads. <laughs> <laughs> so, so historical science fiction, old science fiction might be useful, but only for a light moment of entertainment. For the rest, it has no place in what we do. Well, I take the opposite view. <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've been a fan of and a friend of a lot of future, a lot of science fiction writers over the years, and they've actually uh, referred to me as a futurist who embraces them. Um, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> what I have found is that science fiction writers, the, the 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 best ones, and of course those are the ones I like. Uh, that's how I define the best ones are the ones I like. Uh, <clears throat> uh, they do; they're better storytellers than the average futurist by far. And so they're very good at uh, taking sort of um, technological, social, political trends of the day, extrapolating them into the future, and then telling very human stories about how it, how it plays out. Uh, and so uh, a science fiction writer like Kim, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, for example, yeah. uh, and uh, his, uh, one, of his more, one of his more recent books, uh, New York, I think it was called New York 2041. I think that's the right year. And it's, mm -hmm. it's New York partially underwater because of yeah, sea level rise, because of global warming. You know, it's, and he's just very good at, at helping you imagine uh, sort of alternative futures and how people behave in those futures in ways that the average futurist is just not as good at, 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 in terms of storytelling. So I, I've used science fiction. I've used science fiction films on corporate retreats uh, to, uh, to watch to just to stimulate the imagination. Um, and I tell audiences that, that everybody should read, even if you don't like science fiction, you should read one science fiction book a year just to stretch your mind, uh, in, in ways that, that regular literature won't do. So I, I embrace it. I try to, I try to use it. Um, uh, not, not all science fiction, of course, is equal. Um, uh, but, uh, but I, I am, I am a fan and, and I've used it in my work in various ways. And uh, so I, th I think there's more of a connection, Anton, than you might might think. Although your your your, your view, I've heard uh, from from most futurists I've ever been around, say, no, I've stayed away from science fiction. Uh, it doesn't have much to do with with my work. Well, you know, uh, Gerd, as, Gerd, 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 what about you? Uh, as, is my, as is my style, uh, I have a great quote on this. I always say, science fiction is becoming science fact, right? Um, <laughs> and when I watch Black Mirror, I have to say, well, this is already a fact. When I read Cory Doctorov, I'm saying, yeah, he's describing the present. Uh, and when I, when I look at other things like humans, I mean, I basically, it's, it's, I think it's inspiring. Uh, the bad part of science fiction is that many clients and, and many audiences are tainted by Hollywood science fiction, which is right. basically a death and mayhem and, you know, because that's what sells, you know, and, and right. that makes them afraid. And, and I really think it's important that we don't go into the future with fear. But with caution uh, and excitement, and a lot of fear is being installed in people by, you know, all of the latest Hollywood productions are about how AI will kill us, robots will kill us, we'll kill each other, we have another nuclear war, and it's all about that, right? So, and I think that is a science fiction we don't really need for, uh, that's overkill. Right? But yeah, I, I think it's an important role of science fiction in, in my work. Right? Uh, Glenn, I, I love your point about storytelling because to me that's the hallmark of a great or a good futurist is an, uh, the ability to tell a story that your team or your audience, your client can identify with that moves them intellectually and emotionally. Uh, and if you can't as a futurist do those two things through storytelling, then you should be an academic researcher because being a futurist in the business context is about moving business people, customers, clients, to do more exciting, more ambitious, better, different things. Storytelling is massive. I, I, that's a good point. Yeah. I think, you know, to our colleagues, uh, fellow futurists, uh, there's also, I think everybody has different skills and different talents and different personality. 
like you know i i i try i don't try to convince people with numbers you know uh, i as somebody has said you know uh, uh, if you torture data long enough it will confess to anything right <laughs> so so you take rami's nam for example right i love his work and he he's he's brilliant at taking these numbers and convincing people right and and that's what he does he does a great job at this and i admire his work personally that for me i i i do a narrative you know I, I tell a story and I use some numbers, but you know, uh, but for me, it's all about the story. I think stories have more impact on people than numbers. Um, numbers are kind of a, 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 a foreplay, you know, <laughs> uh, to, to this. And I think that's a really important, this, this is how I do it. I think everybody does it differently. So it's not, yeah. not by any means a, a, a general rule. Let's wrap up with uh, a question about where you are. Um, so what is the immediate future for South Africa, for the U.S., for Europe? I, I have an opinion about the U.S. and for Europe, but not so much for South Africa. But, you know, what is what is your vision and, and what would you like to see happening there? Um, that would be, I think, of interest to people. From a South African perspective, the challenges are absolutely enormous. Uh, we, we have, uh, you know, a, a huge diversity of wealth ownership in the country. It's made strides over the last uh, couple of decades. Um, wealth disparity is absolutely massive. Unemployment is a huge thing. Unfortunately, our government seems stuck in policies that were framed uh, in previous decades. And the, the, the breakthrough for this country will be small business development, entrepreneurship development, harnessing new ways of doing things, enabled by the new technologies. And I think our most serious problem, you know, post-COVID is the education system ill-equipping young learners in the country to be relevant in the future, mm -hmm. uh, followed up by a set of regulatory uh, policy, uh, and policies that enable easily small businesses to grow and flourish. That's the only way we're going to break through this. The big corporates, the big employers, you know, yes, they have a role to play, but the mass impact is, is at, ground root, at grassroots level. Uh, and for me, I, I despair sometimes when I hear some of the government thinking. Some of it is good and has great potential, but then I despair on the execution track record. Uh, and for me, I wish there'd be greater collaboration between uh, the, the policymakers and people that are very good at executing grand plans. Uh, I think not only will South Africa, I suspect the world will need a Marshall Plan post two years of COVID to kind of reinvigorate the global economy uh, and global trust uh, in everything from airlines to restaurants to hotels to institutions. And, and so we need that new form of collaboration. And to me, that's one of the biggest risks is the breakdown of trust when we need trust and collaboration more now than ever before across countries, politics, countries, regions, etc. Let me let, let me add onto the uh, onto the USA debate. Okay, here's one theory. And yeah, then, I want to hear I want to hear your theory, and then yeah. I'll, I'll respond. Here's my theory. Okay. Yeah. I I call this the new American Renaissance. Okay, and I think what's happening right now, America is going close to civil war. It's utterly dysfunctional. It's a total mess. And everybody's saying, yes, it is. You know, there's very few people left who don't say that anymore. And that's going to go on for the summer. And that's going to be very, very painful uh, in so many ways. And my view is that because of this, this enormous hole that America has, has gotten itself into, uh, a Democratic president backed up by a Democratic Congress you know, could mean the biggest change ever since Ronald Reagan, who had the same situation, I think, right? Uh, to actually completely reboot America. And I think this is what may be happening in 2021. Um, and, and this is, of course, what Americans do, right? It's always the utter change. And it's, 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 you know, this is what, this is what makes America, right? Is, is this, you know, That's you true. flip, you, you yeah. pivot on a, on a dime. We would never do that in Europe. It would take us 50 years. So in America, you know, people are saying, I, I think it's very likely that people are going to say, you know, enough of that. And now we're going to do everything completely different. And that's my hope for America. I don't know. What's your take? Well, that's that's a that's a wonderful hope, and and I think and I think you know I think you're right. And certainly when I put on my optimistic lens, uh, I think you're right. That, yeah, it's going to be a, a miserable rest of the summer and fall into the uh, in, into the election here. The the, the battle lines are very very uh, stark. Uh, the violence level goes up, you know, and nobody has uh, as many guns. You know, we we have not only economic inequality and 
and the political issues that we have, but we also are flooded with uh, with weapons in this country, which makes everything more scary. When when you use the term right. civil war, um, you know that actually becomes uh, uh, something involving a lot of a lot of weapons if it was real. Um, no, number one, I, I think that the, the U.S. Uh, what what the current government crisis with the current administration now with COVID on top of it has revealed is the degree of sort of systemic rot within uh, the American political, economic, uh, and economic system that, is, that has been covered up by, you know, basically good economic times and, and, and the continual support of entrepreneurial drive, which has always sort of characterized the United States. Um, now, the, all the holes in that system are being revealed by the crises uh, that we're in. Uh, and so if, uh, as the polls would suggest, uh, there's an election in the fall and we do end up with a Democratic president and Democratic Congress, then I think it is quite possible that we'll see um, a, as big a shift, even bigger than during the Ronald Reagan area, more comparable to Franklin Roosevelt in yeah. terms of, of reinventing the American system. And that would be looking at economic inequality and healthcare inequality. And probably looking at the whole issue of weapons and looking at the environment in a in a serious way, uh, in in a way that in which actions actually then occur. It isn't just a conversation. There are new policies put in place and, and things that will actually happen as a result. What we don't know is the degree to which, as we approach this election, and this is uh, I am serious about this. We don't know the degree to which um, the election is could be manipulated by both foreign and uh, nefarious American forces. We really don't. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of bizarre to, see, to be in the U.S., the, you know, the land of free elections, the, the, the country that has, you know, spent the last 50 years monitoring the world for free elections and calling this election free and that one not, now approaches an election in which nobody in the country is really quite sure whether it will be a free election. Uh, but if we, if we assume that it will be or that the numbers uh, are, will be so large as to overwhelm any, any effort to manipulate the polls, and by manipulate the polls, I mean keep people in the U.S. There are two primary things that are possible. Number one, prevent people from voting who want to vote. Uh, and there are various ways, means by which that is done. Uh, and the second is uh, because more and more polling is done electronically, literally to, to manipulate the, the actual outcome. Of the, of the election and, and people are, are seriously concerned about that now of course both sides are would, would accuse the others of, of, of being the manipulators and both have teams that are gearing up to uh, to try to stop that there's uh there uh gird and back to science fiction for a second kim stanley robinson wrote a three book series about global warming basically and within mm -hmm. that book series there there is one american election in which there's a massive effort to hack the election by one party, but then the other party has a massive counter hack uh, team. And so the, the election the election rides on who has the better hackers, basically. Uh, and uh, and and now we you know, people are actually seriously. It sounds talking like about our that. reality. Yeah, it, it, it does. <laughs> okay. um, All right. I, I'll give you a short take on Europe and then I think we should wrap up, okay. wrap up right? Yep. So I think what's happening in Europe right now is that um, the COVID crisis has forced us to either stand together with pretty much unlimited solidarity or crash, right? And basically what has happened in the beginning in March, it looked like it was going to crash, right? But, but now we're in a world where uh, the European government, the commission, and of course the, uh, the parliament has just approved this bailout package, which is mind-bogglingly, you know, basically completely unlimited solidarity with Italy, Spain, Portugal, you know, 100 billion euros for, for Italy without conditions, a flat out grant. Uh, so the lesson has arrived. If we want to be something together of a world power, we have to have unlimited solidarity. And even the Danish and the Dutch have finally agreed. Uh, so that's very, very hopeful. I think this crisis is forcing Europe to come together as what I call the United States of Europe, which has been debated many times. And I think this is really where we're going. Here in Switzerland, we are part of that, whether we want to or not already. Right? Uh, there's many illusions that we have in Switzerland about our complete independence, but, but <laughs> we are, we are, uh, we are in Europe, right? In fact, you could say the Swiss political system is probably going to be the system that will be used to create the United States of Europe.
you know, the cantons having independence yeah. and so on. Yeah. So I, I see a great future for Europe. I'm very hopeful for this, um, especially after the crisis, because when we move together, we can be a, a powerful player in the world like the US was, parenthesis, uh, China. Uh, and so that, that's my positive view on the future. Um, so Good. Uh, just make a, a quick comment. I was, yes. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's great. I think Angela Merkel has played a huge role in achieving this breakthrough moment. Mm -hmm. And two of my most admired global leaders are both women prime ministers. And there's Angela Merkel and uh, Jacinda Ardern. <laughs> of course, of course, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, this is just the final comment, but we can we can also see the rise of women you know, uh, around the world in this crisis. And that's going to continue. There's going to be women, minorities, and younger people going into politics. Uh, yep. And on top of that, you have really wise people, you know, like like sort of Socrates kind of people who will be drawn yep. into this as well. That's my hope. But, you know, if we had more Yacinda Ardern's and more, uh, what's the name from Taiwan, uh, yep. and Denmark and Iceland and, you know, what, what have you, we'd be much better off, you know. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. I think that, 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 that's what's coming. I often say women are the future for so many reasons, but this is one of the reasons that, yeah. you know, you, you have this combination of compassion and sharp intellect that, that Yacinda has, has, for example. Um, but then again, of course, New Zealand. Military, military language in politics and business is over, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not killing the competition anymore. <laughs> and that that gives me hope that we can actually achieve this, you know. Uh, my hunch is, and I've said it a few times already, in 20 years when we do have a world government, the global leader will be a young woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. we'll probably see older you know, or very old people, you know, in the in that inner circle, you know, like we did in, in, in ancient Greece, you know, Socrates and people like so that sort of thing, right? But to pull this off, I think that's um, that's a brilliant that's, that's a brilliant vision. Yeah. 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 Love it. So I want to thank you very much for your time. And I hope I was able to share some important important feedback with you. And I look forward to seeing you at our virtual discussion. Thanks very much and see you down the road.